Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Rod Dreher. He is a senior editor at the American Conservative and the best-selling author of The Benedict Option, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, Crunchy Cons, and How Dante Can Save Your Life. He's with us today to discuss his deeply insightful and chilling new book, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod Dreher, welcome to Madison's Notes. It's great to be here, Nino. Thanks for having me on. In 2015, five years ago, a doctor called you. You weren't a patient of his. You'd never met him before. Why did he call you and what did he say? He called me in light of the controversy that had been happening in the state of Indiana. Uh, The state had tried that year and had succeeded in passing and signing into law uh, a state version of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That caused a huge uh, showdown with corporate America. For the first time, they took a stand in the culture war, uh, came down hard on the state and told the state that if you don't repeal this bigot law, there, there will be severe economic repercussions. At the same time this was going on, a TV reporter from one of the TV stations in Indianapolis went to a small town pizzeria. Uh, this pizzeria was owned by an evangelical Christian family and asked the, the father and daughter on camera, would you serve gay people? They said, sure, we would do that. Well, would you cater a gay wedding? No, we wouldn't do that. It's against our beliefs. This went viral and suddenly this little pizzeria uh, had to face death threats, threats of being burned down. Uh, the mob turned on the progressive mob. Well, this prompted a physician to call me, a, a doctor at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, he, we had a mutual friend, and he said, sir, I feel like I have to tell somebody this story. My elderly mother lives with me and my wife. She was born in Czechoslovakia, a Catholic, spent four years in a prison camp for her faith, And now uh, at the end of her life, she's living here with us and says, son, the things I'm seeing happen in America right now remind me of what I left behind. And she was referring specifically to what was going on in Indiana and what was being done to these these evangelicals. And what she meant was the, the way that those in power would gen up an ideological mob and turn them onto those that they had decided were enemies of the people. Yeah. Well, when this doctor told me that, I, I was thinking, wow, you know, that's pretty wild. Uh, but maybe his elderly mother is uh, watching too much cable news. I mean, my mom is old and she watches a lot of Fox News. And sometimes I have to talk her down off the roof after she's, <laughs> she's seen that. She always comes up with uh, every third day, right? she'll recite what she heard on the news that day and say, you know, we in Revelations. <laughs> it's the end times. But anyway, I, so I kind of wondered if that's what the old Czech woman was saying. Yeah. But then, you know, I started checking around with people I knew who had defected from the Soviet bloc. And over the next few years, as I would travel, like I was at a conference at Notre Dame and met a Slovak uh, mathematician, I would ask them, are you seeing what this Czech woman is seeing? Every single one of them say, will say yes. And then if you talk to them long enough, 
they will talk about how angry they are that Americans just refuse to see it. So that was the genesis for this book, Live Not By Lies. I, I first of all, tried to make the case for why what these people are seeing really does, really does uh, rhyme, you might say, with uh, Soviet totalitarianism. But the second half of the book is based on my travels throughout uh, the Soviet bloc, talking to Christians who came through the, the persecution and getting their advice for what Christians in America should do to get ready. And what we saw in the Soviet bloc under the Soviet Union, we, we might call just pure totalitarianism. What you see coming to America is what you call soft totalitarianism. Can you explain the difference between the two and then maybe give a few examples? You mentioned the evangelicals in Indiana uh, in 2015, but maybe some examples of this soft totalitarianism in action. Sure. Well, uh, I think, first of all, we have to make a distinction, a definitional distinction between authoritarianism and totalitarianism. Mm. Authoritarianism is when all the political power in a society is concentrated in one party or one leader. Totalitarianism is a, an extreme version of authoritarianism. Under totalitarianism, all the political power is concentrated, but everything in society is political. You know, there is no part of society that is untouched by politics and ideology. So we had a case in the Soviet Union when not long after the Bolshevik Revolution, the Soviet Chess Society was really trying to defend itself and the integrity of the game from political encroachment. But a commissar wrote to the Chess Society and said, no, 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 comrades, there can be no such thing as chess for chess's sake under the revolution. Everything has to be for the revolution. Well, that's totalitarianism. And I think that sort of thing is happening in this country. And it's not just me who thinks this, the people right. who open my eyes to it. Um, but it's not going to be hard totalitarianism in the sense that there'll be gulags and KGB knocking on your door in the middle of the night. That's what we saw in the Soviet Union. And that's what our idea of totalitarianism is, not only from the Cold War, but from reading George Orwell's 1984. Mm -hmm. That was a society in which the state controlled the people by inflicting pain and terror on them. I think our situation is going to be a lot more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, in which the state controlled everybody, not by inflicting pain and terror, but by managing their pleasures, their comforts, and their entertainment. Uh, and it was a voluntary thing, uh, as opposed to being forced on them. People wanted to live in this totalitarian society that took care of all their needs and kept them endlessly entertained and drugged up. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that this is one reason that we have so much trouble seeing it as Americans, seeing what's happening as a form of totalitarianism, because it doesn't fit our definition. It doesn't fit our, our what we remember from high school, from reading 1984. But when you have things like um, people in, in corporations, for example, being forced to go through anti-racism training, that is not a matter of saying racism is bad. We should all agree that racism is bad. But rather, this so-called anti-racism training, I mean, and this is a really Orwellian term, it requires people to, uh, white people, to say that we are racist, we are bad, we affirm our whiteness and that it is bad. I mean, it's nuts. In King County, Washington right now, that's going on. This is a really great investigative journalist named Christopher Rufo, who has, yeah, that's right. yeah, he, he's uncovered documents 
from the district attorney's office. Uh, the office training there requires white employees to, to confess to something they may not believe in, but you have to do it as a condition of employment. This was something that we saw in, in the Soviet Union and in the Soviet bloc. People brought up on false charges of ideological, um, of violating the ideology of being counter-revolutionary and being compelled uh, under pain of death to admit to things that they knew they weren't guilty of. Mm. So that's just one example, but you're seeing it over and over. Cancel culture, for example, that, yeah. that's a good one. Um, there was this woman earlier this year, I forget her name, Jean Cummins, I think it is. She had a book coming out, a novel about immigrants from Mexico and the immigrant experience. It was apparently widely praised. Oprah Winfrey put it on her book club. Uh, the actress Salma Hayek had praised it in advance. So the book comes out, and because Cummins is not Hispanic, she was attacked by some Hispanic activists for appropriating their story. Huh. Right? And huh. suddenly, the, the, the book, which was going to be this massive release, it, it falls into so much controversy. Salma Hayek withdrew her endorsement of it, and this Janine Cummins, you know, with, with no commentary on the quality of the work, rather, it's, it's about that she appropriated the story of an ethnic group that was not her own. This, this kind of cancel culture is endemic in the liberal arts, and uh, it's, it's just running rampant through universities. And so I could give so many examples, but you get the point. Uh, right there at Princeton, where you are, That's right. uh, yeah. yeah, they came after Professor Joshua Katz in the classics department simply because he spoke up against an attempt to use anti-racism to, in his view, uh, violate academic freedom and other liberties that are important at the university. They denounced him, tried to run him out of the university, and it, it was just an absolute disgrace. But that's what we're talking about. It, it doesn't look like totalitarianism until you see it yourself and realize yeah. that, that there is no defense for you. Yeah. You mentioned what happened with Professor Katz here at Princeton University, and yet, despite this, one of Professor Katz's colleagues, a professor named Eddie Gloud here at Princeton University, you recently appeared with Professor Gloud on The Morning Joe to discuss your book. And Professor Gloud dismissed the idea, the very idea of an illiberal left in America, and he called it more whining from the right. And when you mentioned uh, Professor Katz, who is himself a liberal, Professor Gloud rolled his eyes. I'm curious, were you surprised when you heard Professor Gloud deny that such illiberalism even exists on the left? Well, it, at first I was surprised. I'm like, come on, man, you know this happens. But then I realized later in thinking about it that this is part of their strategy to say that it doesn't, it, it's not happening. The people who think it's happening are bigots or in some way have, uh, um, have uh, they're acting in bad faith. And this is how they, they deal with it. Um, I was talking to a, a very liberal friend of mine. I love her to death, but I was talking to her about all this. And she said, well, you know, this is all exaggerated from the right. Hmm. Because if they convince themselves of that, then they don't have to deal with what is plainly anti-intellectual and, and illiberal behavior by the leading lights of the left. And I, I have this idea that I've, I've had and I've talked about on my blog for a few years called The Law of Merited Impossibility. The law of merited impossibility goes like this. It will never happen. And when it does, you bigots will deserve it. <laughs> that, that, that law helps you understand how the left behaves. And, and Professor Gloud did it on live national TV. It's like, these people don't exist. And when we find them, 
we drive them out. Yeah, that's right. As you've detailed, this soft totalitarianism is not coming from government officers in jackboots, at least not yet, but it's coming from corporations, institutions of higher learning, the media, and so on. I'd like to talk a little bit about the first two, corporations and institutions of higher learning. Why are corporations so hostile today to social conservatism and to Christianity and so willing to give way to the woke and the social justice warriors? Paul, you know, that is a a fantastic question. And it's something that I've thought about for a while. I can remember uh, being at a journalism conference back in the 2000s. You know, I was in mainstream journalism for a long time. And uh, I can remember talking to the publisher of a major newspaper in the South, in a pretty conservative part of the country. And and that paper had a, a reputation for LGBT advocacy in its news pages, not just its editorial pages, but its news pages. And uh, they were really proud of it. And I remember talking to this uh, publisher on a break at, at the conference and saying, listen, you know, your numbers, your circulation is falling off a cliff, like everybody's uh, was in those days in, in newspapers. Why are you antagonizing so many of your, of your readers? Because you live in a pretty conservative part of the country. And he looked at me and said, we don't need bigots as readers. Mm. Now, I've thought about that a lot because here's a guy who it, it was in his interest, financial interest, and the interest of the organization he led uh, to not antagonize readers. I'm not talking about uh, suppressing news. I'm talking about not, not practicing advocacy journalism on LGBT issues. But it was more important to him to be on the right side of history, as they saw it. Right. And I began to think that, uh, realize over time that these corporate leaders, it matters more to them to uh, receive plaudits from their social class than it does even to make money. You know, whenever I see liberals claiming, well, you know, if, uh, if Hollywood can make money from conservative movies, they would do it. Clearly, the market doesn't reward that. That's just wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah the... The, you can never uh, overestimate the power of peer group approval and mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in among these elites. And it, it has really happened in corporate America. I mean, as, as the, the, uh, the woke have marched through the institutions, they march through the institutions of corporate America, which likes to see itself as, as good citizens. That, uh, the thing we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, um, the, when, Corporate America, Apple Computer, Salesforce, and others intervened in Indiana in 2015. Right. That was a real landmark in the culture war. That was a culture war equivalent of the United States coming into the war uh, with Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, hmm. right? Because when you bring in, in a, a capitalist society like ours, when you bring the weight of big business onto one side in the culture war, it's over. Yeah. And I've, I've talked over the years to uh, people I know who are lobbyists uh, for religious liberty at the state level. And uh, they tell me that uh, this is never reported in the news, but big corporations who have, uh, they have lobbying presences at state houses all over the country. And they push hard against any proposed religious liberty legislation. Uh, this is not coming from local people. This is coming from corporate headquarters in Silicon Valley or wherever. But uh, they are flexing their corporate muscle to, um, for socially liberal purposes. And um, that's, just, that's a fact that so many of us conservatives, older conservatives, really struggle to get our minds around because we have inherited the Reagan era 
idea that big government bad, big business is good. Yeah, right. Completely right. flipped. And if we think totalitarianism is only something that can come through the government, then we're going to miss what's really happening now. The power of woke corporations, woke capitalism, to shift the culture and to oppress people uh, and to marginalize uh, social and religious conservatives is immense. The government doesn't have to get involved in all this for it to become a thing. Mm. I think maybe another misconception that many on the right have is that it doesn't matter what happens on college campuses. These campuses are always a little nutty, and these kids will graduate, get a job, and denounce their wokeness. That doesn't seem to be happening. Oh, no. No, look, that was the story when I was in college in the 1980s. I mean, I was fairly liberal in college, and my dad would just laugh at me and say, just you wait till you have to start paying taxes. And <laughs> And of course he was right. It was true. But that doesn't happen anymore. Right. And uh, in fact, we're seeing these uh, young graduates of colleges and not just the elite liberal colleges either, but a lot of colleges coming out with their wokeness intact and going into institutions and demanding they change. Yeah. We saw a powerful example of this this year with the New York Times. Um, uh, the the liberal, uh, very principled liberal columnist Barry Weiss resigned mm -hmm. her position at the New York Times because she was disgusted by how the woke, which is to say the young mostly, and at the New York Times, were pushing around the the organization itself and changing journalistic standards, and how the baby boomer and other uh, gatekeepers within the organization were surrendering to them. Yeah. I think that one of the signal moments in this cultural change was recorded on video on the campus of Yale University back in 2015. You might remember how uh, Professor Erica Christakis, she and sure. her husband Nicholas Christakis were, uh, I think they called them housemasters back then. That's changed. <laughs> but they, but uh, they were um, talking about the the, something that Yale had put out around Halloween telling the students that they shouldn't wear certain costumes because they shouldn't offend people. Well, Erica Christakis wrote a note to all the students there saying, really? Should, is it the position of Yale University to tell grown adults uh, what they shouldn't wear at Halloween? Mm. You would think that students, or they would have in my day, um, would have stood up for her and like, yeah, they can't tell, the man can't tell us what to do. To the contrary, they attacked her viciously for not being sensitive to their uh, their their integrity as as human beings. Blah blah blah. And uh, there's a scene you can see on YouTube of her husband Nicholas Christakis on a on a quad at Yale, trying to have a conversation, a dialogue with these angry students. And he's a baby boomer, gray-haired guy, and he's out there trying to do what you expect from a college professor. Reason with them, listen to them, respond to what they're saying, then throw things back at them. These kids are not having it. They're yeah. shrieking at him. They're cursing at him. They're sobbing. They're having a hysterical fit, saying that he doesn't have a right to his opinion. Well, what happens? Yale University sides with the students against the Christakis's. And that, that is a, a tremendously important capitulation. And we have seen this sort of capitulation all along the way with university presidents, with newspaper and newsroom editors, uh, people who ought to be standing up and defending liberal values, a tolerance, reason, freedom of expression, and so forth. But in fact, they are surrendering to the woke mob. Yeah. You cite Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. 
in the conditions that till the ground and ready it uh, for the poisonous seeds planted by ideological activists that will blossom into totalitarian rule. Among these conditions are loneliness and social atomization, lost faith in hierarchies and institutions, the desire to transgress and destroy, propaganda and the willingness to believe useful lies, a mania for ideology, a society that values loyalty more than expertise. Rod, it sounds like we're six for six there. <laughs> we certainly are. And this is, I got to tell you, this was the most surprising thing about doing this research. You know, if you're going to write about totalitarianism, you have to go read Arendt's 1951 book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, in which she examined both German society before the Nazis and Russian society before the Bolsheviks to see if they had anything in common, if there were things that set them up for totalitarianism. And these things you just mentioned are the things she found and loneliness and atomization being by far the most important well all of these things exist today and uh and wokeness social justice the the idea of social justice as they the social justice warriors conceive it this is a uh, a pseudo religion that uh, young people and others have adopted uh to deal help deal with their anxiety with their sense of being displaced a sense of having no connection, no solidarity, no sense of purpose or meaning. I mean, we're a post-Christian society, and um, if we were a healthy society, from my point of view, the Christian religion would be there to provide these things for people. But yeah. for a lot of reasons, it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, but people can't live in that vacuum forever. So uh, if you look at the way the, the Bolsheviks, the young Bolsheviks, took up Marxism and the way young Nazis took up Nazism, it answered, it provided an answer to a lot of questions that the masses had back then, but that they, um, that they weren't finding answers for. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that we, we make a mistake, we conservatives make a mistake if we simply laugh at the craziness of the social justice warriors. Mm -hmm. These are young people who are afraid mm -hmm. and they're anxious uh, and nobody has given them the sort of things that they need in order to make sense of the world. So they're grasping. And uh, I, I mean, I get so frustrated with them. I laugh at some of the insanity they come up with. But what we're seeing is are young people in crisis and a society in crisis. David Brooks has a really interesting essay in the Atlantic Monthly this month call, uh, about the collapse of social trust in the United States. Right. And uh, I, I wrote to David, David's a friend, I, I wrote to him afterwards and said, this is what my book is about. The, this collapse of social trust, something has to rush into the vacuum. And I have to say that in China, you know, I, I talk in, in my book, Live Not By Lies, about the social credit system that has yeah, come right. in China. Maybe we can get into that in a bit. Oh, we will. Yeah, absolutely. But, but, um, but that was uh, not simply a matter of the state looking for a way to control people, but it's popular among the Chinese people because communism, uh, 40, 50 years of communism, destroyed the ability of people to trust each other. Mm -hmm. And so uh, ordinary Chinese people actually like this thing because it helps them know who is trustworthy in society. Mm. So this is, uh, this is one reason why I think that we are being set up uh, by events happening around us right now, we're being set up for a social credit system here uh, mm. because people don't trust each other. Mm. 
I'm sure listeners will be just as shocked as I was to, to, to hear those parallels drawn out by Hannah Arendt there. But probably the most jarring line in the entire book comes from a Hungarian dissident who told you that 30 years of freedom had done more to erode cultural memory than the totalitarianism of previous eras. In his own words, quote, what neither Nazism or communism could do, victorious liberal capitalism has done, end quote. Can you explain isn't, that? Isn't that incredible? Yeah, I amazing. remember yeah. sitting in this man's living room in Budapest, talking to him, and he's a teacher of English and a faithful Catholic. But uh, he was talking about the irony of you know what his family and all faithful people suffered under communism. Uh, and he talked about how uh, this was part of a conversation in which he was saying that uh, under when he was a kid under communism, that the state was constantly hitting them with propaganda films, trying to destroy cultural memory, trying to make anything that came before the revolution tainted by evil, by you know, capitalism, religion, and so on and so forth, because they knew that in order to remake the new communist man, they had to uh, turn people away from anything traditional in their past that could stand in opposition or give them a place, uh, firm ground to stand on in opposition. But um, for this man to say that you know th this 30 years of freedom has been, and, and capitalism, has been worse on that front, that was really shocking. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I noticed this as I traveled throughout the former Soviet bloc talking to young people. In Poland, uh, I, I'd grown up in the era of John Paul II. I always thought of Poland as a fortress of Christianity and fidelity <laughs> in, um, in a godless continent. Well, guess what? That's not so anymore. Mm. I talked to young practicing Catholics in their 20s. And every one of them told me that, yeah, you know, in 10, maybe 20 years, Poland is going to be the same as Ireland. Hmm. Like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, you know, godless. People walk away from the faith. And what it is, is uh, uh, this desire to be like what they see in the West. Uh, they, they want to be people who are unencumbered by the weight of history by the burden of religious faith, by, uh, by anything that gets in the way of them exercising their unfettered will and desire to make themselves into whatever they want to be. Now, uh, and their parents, for whatever reason, have not chosen to burden them with the history of communism, maybe because it is a heavy weight for the older generations to carry and they don't want to burden their, their kids with this. Nevertheless, uh, as one Hungarian, young Hungarian, uh, told me of that generation, she said, the people of my generation in this country, we want nothing more than to be Sweden. You know, they want to be desiring, hmm. uh, hedonistic, capitalistic um, individuals, as they put it. But it, it's a, a herd of individuals. Uh, and they, it's Gosh. really, really sad to see them throw away their history. But this is... Um, I think John Paul II actually went to Poland in one of his final speeches there. He told, after the fall of communism, he told the Poles, listen, you've overthrown one materialistic ideology. Uh, don't fall prey to a more sophisticated one, meaning Western capitalism. Don't let it take your faith mm -hmm. away. The things that faith tells us are important. But um, it, it does seem to have happened. And, uh, and it's... It's really, this is a soft form. This is what soft totalitarianism does, right? Yeah. It, it tells you that, uh, that this is the only way things can be. 
uh, Christian Smith at Notre Dame, a sociologist of religion, talks about in his studies of young people and the religiosity of young Americans, uh, most of them believe that life is about nothing more than having fun, being happy, and successful. And uh, that's not, whatever that is, that's not Christianity, and you cannot make a strong and resilient culture on the basis of that. In fact, it will, it will set yourself up for totalitarian domination, because when you can't have the things that you think make you happy, um, you'll be willing to surrender any political liberties uh, in exchange for the things that, that will satisfy that anxiety. This Western capitalism seems to have uh, laid the framework uh, for what you call techno-totalitarianism, uh, like we see in, in China. Uh, you relay in the book a conversation you had with a dissident named Camilla Bendeva, when you tell her about the millions of Americans with these digital assistants, Alexa and Siri, which I can say because I turned my phone off, um, she, this dissident looked appalled. Uh, and you say she was clearly thinking, how can Americans be so gullible to allow these things, these digital spies, into their homes? <clears throat> now, of course, the response we'll get from listeners and from readers, I'm sure, is, well, it just makes life so much easier to have these robots. And I haven't said anything bad. I haven't said anything controversial. What do I have to hide? How did she and how would you respond to that? Wow, yeah. Camilla's an amazing person. She's a philosopher. She's quite old now, but she and her late husband, Václav, were the only Christians, they were Catholics, in Václav Havel's inner circle, the Charter mm -hmm. 77 dissidents. And in fact, uh, Václav Havel went, uh, Václav Benda went to prison for four years for his anti-government activity. And I'm sitting there and, and Camilla and I are having this conversation and I noticed that she had a dumb phone uh, sitting next to her and I asked her <laughs> why she didn't use a smartphone. And that's when she said that, she goes, I, we don't understand you Americans. And I think she was also talking about young people in her country yeah. about how uh, naive we are about information. She said that if you've lived through what we live through in this country, you know that information is power. And that to give people information, outside entities information about yourself is to give them power over you. Mm. Now, you yeah. might think, she said, she said, you might think, I've not done anything bad. What do I have to worry about? She said, that's really naive because they don't, you don't have to have done anything bad. If they have the information on you, they can find a crime. And then Camilla pointed in her, we're sitting in her living room in her apartment in Prague. She pointed to scars on the wall and the paint where she and her husband had ripped out the wires that the, the secret police had put in there when they, were, they bugged the apartment. And uh, Camilla said the idea that people would welcome this sort of surveillance into their house is just insane. And I've thought about this, you know, about, about how, you know, we also have these things, I talk about them in the book, about this, this new technology that's been invented from smart TVs that can read the faces of the people watching it, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and use uh, facial recognition software to determine the emotional state of the viewers when they watch particular things. This is not science fiction. This is actually happening. And, uh, and I thought to myself, you know, if the government came in, if an FBI agent came in and said, we would like to install this speaker, this Alexa speaker in your house, or we want to put this smart TV in your house, um, everybody would know exactly what was going on. But when you frame the same thing as consumer convenience and as, wow, technology is going to make your life better, not only will we accept it, we'll pay them for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 
And so th these, these people who lived with it are like, you're crazy. You can't do that. Don't you see where this is going? Let's talk about where it might be going. When I speak with friends about this, when I share with friends the thesis of your book and try to talk with them about <coughs> soft totalitarianism, at first they're skeptical. It's like totalitarianism in America, that seems unlikely. And then they hear the examples and they think, well, maybe soft totalitarianism. Let me ask you this. When or will this soft totalitarianism become hard totalitarianism? And I'll, I'll add to this question a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn that you begin the book with. And it's from his essay, Live Not by Lies, from which you take the title of your book. And Solzhenitsyn says, quote, there always is this fallacious belief. It would not be the same here. Here, such things are impossible. Alas, all the evil of the 20th century is possible everywhere on earth. Well, there it is. It, it is a failure of our imagination to think that it can't happen here. Mm. Uh, in fact, uh, a number of the, the people who escaped communism who live in this country have said to me that they believe it's going to, be hard, get, to become hard totalitarianism very fast. Mm. Um, my thought is that the state and the regime, I, I should say, and by regime, I mean like the elites in universities, um, corporations and so forth, I don't think they'll have to resort to hard totalitarianism to get what they want. Um, I think they'll be able to do it primarily through a social credit system. But let me say this. Uh, I, last week on, on TV, um, Joe Biden said that he believes that eight-year-olds should be able to change their sex. Now, this is something that we just take as like, oh, okay. But back 10, 15 years ago, transgenderism was a fringe phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But now it is something that a Democratic presidential candidate, an 80-year-old man, can endorse um, as something suitable for children. That's how fast things have changed in this yeah. country. And I don't see any brakes being put on any of this. Plus, people who object to this transgenderism and for children, people like this woman, Abigail Schreier, who has mm -hmm. a new book out about it, she's a liberal. She believes transgenderism is fine for adults, but she just thinks it's a problem for children. And she's facing constant attacks to try to shut her down and delegitimize her in the same way J.K. Rowling has, has done. Anyway, my, my point simply is that things change very, very fast in this country. And one of the big lessons I learned from studying totalitarianism is you have to always pay attention to the elites. This is where these ideas first get going. Um, James Davison Hunter, the sociologist at University of Virginia, he points out, and he pointed out in a book 10 years ago, that um, you know, a lot of people have the mistake, uh, evangelicals especially, have this mistaken idea that Cultural change happens from the masses and percolates up. That's not how it usually works. It happens when people in elite networks seize onto a, a certain idea or set of ideas and start promoting it, mm. and the masses follow. That's what happened with the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and that's what's happened with the sexual revolution here. So um, I, I think, though, to that we won't see hard totalitarianism, at least I hope we won't, but I don't think it's necessary because of the social credit system. Uh, maybe your listeners know or, uh, about the social credit system in China. It's a, a technological system, or one 
made possible through advanced technology, artificial intelligence and other related technologies, in which each Chinese citizen has a social credit profile, much like we have a, a credit rating here in this country, so you can yeah. see who's, who's credit worthy, who can pay back their bills. Well, theirs is, uh, uh, is, is focused on the way you behave socially. So if you are uh, the sort of Chinese citizen who does socially creditable things, like download the speeches of Xi Jinping, your social credit rating will go higher. Now, mind you, nobody has to pay attention to it. No human set of eyes has to be on this. Everything is so wired together there that they, the, 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 the mothership, you might say, can know if you as an individual Chinese have downloaded the speeches of Xi Jinping and it will make the adjustment. If you do things that are socially discreditable, like go to church or hang out with people who have low social credit scores, your social credit score will go down. The higher your social credit score, the more privileges you have, the lower, the less you have. Mm -hmm. You are locked out of the economy in certain important ways and society. So in this way, the secret police may never show up at your door, but all your neighbors and your family members who don't want to have a low social credit rating, they will force you to conform at the expense of being cut off from them. Yeah. Well, I think this sort of thing is coming to America because we already in this country collect the same data that the Chinese government do, but it's collected not by our government, it's collected by Facebook mm -hmm. and Amazon and Google. And uh, they use it to, to sell us things, right? But in the book, I quote uh, some, I think it was a scientist from Google or one of them saying that, yeah, you know, we, we know that we can use this information to sort of nudge people to believe certain things. Yeah. That's going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, it, and I, I just think that we, we're so given over as Americans to the myth of technological progress that if, if they say that here's, here's a new technology, we tend to be completely uh, not skeptical mm -hmm. of it. And, uh, and these are things that are happening, not secretly, not as according to some conspiracy, you know, but it's happening openly and legally yeah. that they're collecting all this data. Yeah. Let's talk about what we might be able to do uh, to stop this or to at least <clears throat> slow it down. And let's start with talking about what we can do as individuals and as families, and then maybe work up to potential political solutions. But I want to start with the individual. You offer an example of the sort of doctrine of wokeness that the left expects one to accept. And unfortunately, I think when I read this, people will say, yeah, you know, I, I think when I walk into my place of work, talk to friends, I'm expected to believe this. This is the example of the doctrine you give, quote, men have periods. The woman standing in front of you is called he. Diversity and inclusion means excluding those who object to ideological uniformity. Equity means treating persons unequally, regardless of their skills and achievements, to achieve an ideologically correct result, end quote. And the response might come, and it does come, Rod, just go along with it. Be polite. Mm -hmm. If a man identifies as a woman, just call him her. If the school would like you to take the ideological implicit bias training, just get it over with and get on with your day. These are relatively minor instances, and as you acknowledge, we're not all called to be Solzhenitsyn. So how do we determine what's expected of us as individuals? How do we manage being prudent about how and when we fight while not allowing cowardice to masquerade as prudence? 
It's a very difficult question. And it's one that I, I've been asked before and I feel uncomfortable trying to provide a, a, an answer that will, that will suit every situation. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Poland, uh, I talked to some Catholics who work for uh, the uh, Polish branches of Western uh, multinationals. And they were being compelled in the workplace to participate in LGBT pride celebrations within the company as part of the company culture. And they were really conflicted about this. They said that, you know, this, this has nothing to do with the work that we're doing, but this is what the company demands. And, um, you know, we don't want to do it. We're Catholics. But they also had family to support. And they were afraid that uh, they, if they quit their jobs, they wouldn't be able to get other jobs. Now, who am I to come in here as an American, not knowing these people or the circumstances of their lives and tell them, no, you have to stand up here. I think the best somebody like me can do is to remind them that, uh, you know, to talk with their, uh, their priest or their spiritual father, someone they can trust, talk with their trusted friends uh, that help make this decision, uh, but know at some point that there must be a line because if you capitulate once, it's going to be easier to capitulate again and again and yeah. again. I have a traditional Catholic friend in New York who works very high up in a major financial institution. And for years, he's told me that, you know, he has LGBT employees working under him. Uh, and, uh, and he says, they're good employees. I treat them fairly. I never bring my religion into the workplace. He said, though, that he can tell the human resources department at the financial institution at this bank is getting more and more aggressive about trying to make sure that all the managers not affirm LGBT. Yeah. And he said, I've been able to just to send this to the trash uh, when it comes along every year, but I know the day is coming when I will no longer be able to do that, when they're going to force me to uh, affirm this ideology. And that's the day that I have to resign. So what he did, he went out and got a real estate license so he could support his family in the case that he had to resign on principle. Wow. I think that's the sort of thing, that's a, a reasonable, prudent strategy for all Christians uh, if you work in a, in a woke uh, profession to, uh, to, to make it easier to make the right decision, the courageous decision uh, by making sure or doing the best you can to make sure you have something else to go to. Um, but I, I tell you, you know, it's, it's such a difficult thing. I realize I have it very easy. You know, I, I work for a conservative magazine. I get to say what I want to say, but um, I hear from professors, mostly professors all the time, but also some people within corporations who are terrified, yeah. who believe that, that they are going to be uh, hounded out of their work and they don't know what to do. They have yeah. families. You know, but uh, so I think the rest of us need in the Christian communities and conservative communities need to become aware of this and come to the defense of of our of others who are attacked, like Joshua Katz there at Princeton. Yeah, I was so gratified to see how many people, uh, Professor Robert George and others, who spoke up in defense of Josh Katz, even though he's not a Christian and not even a conservative. Mm -hmm. He was an innocent man, a man who stood on principle for some important principles uh, within the institution and was savaged for it. And I think that my sense is that the fact that so many people, even outside of Princeton, came to his defense, I think that may have bolstered his position within the university. That's the sort of thing that we have to do. We can't just sit back and see some 
conservatives, some Christian, or even a liberal, people like Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, the, the yeah. secular liberals at uh, Evergreen State, and anybody is attacked uh, for standing on principle, attacked by the woke mob. We're all being attacked, and we had better get busy trying to defend them, raising the alarm, and building networks of self-defense. Yeah, you know, we're, we're very proud of the Madison program uh, to have both Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying with us as as visiting fellows. And you're right that they really are examples of tremendous courage in the face of all this. I wanna talk about another example of tremendous courage. And this is a greengrocer. Ah. Tell us about him. Oslav Havel, uh, three years after Solzhenitsyn wrote Live Not By Lies, Havel wrote a famous essay called The Power of the Powerless that just electrified the dissident community in Eastern Europe. And he was making the same point as Solzhenitsyn, though he did it at, at much greater length, that uh, in a totalitarian society, uh, when ordinary people have no power to overturn the government, that doesn't mean that you have no power at all. And he invented the, uh, the fable of the greengrocer. He said, imagine a little greengrocer there in, uh, under communism, who, like every other business owner or business manager in that society, is told to put a sign in the window, the shop window, saying, workers of the world, unite, the communist slogan. Well, one day the greengrocer decides, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I don't believe this. I'm not going to put that sign in there just to avoid trouble. So he takes it down. Well, what happens to him? The government comes after him. They take his business. Uh, they maybe take the, away the rights of his kids to go to college. He can't travel and so on and so forth. So he, he suffers a real loss. But what has he gained? he has shown that it, it is possible to live within that system without affirming its lies, if you're willing to suffer. And, uh, and by showing that it's possible to do the right thing and to be a man or a woman of integrity under the system of lies, you give courage to other people. Yeah. And who knows where it's going to turn out? It, you know, when I talking to these old dissidents in all these countries, none of them thought they would ever live to see the end of communism. They stood up because it was the right thing to do. And, um, and they drew other people to themselves. I, I talked to a man in Moscow, a man named Viktor Popkov. This is in the book. Um, he, in the early 70s, he had become so uh, disillusioned with communist society, with Soviet society. And um, he was looking for some, something, somebody to give him a sense of meaning to life. And he found it in a group of young Christian converts there in Moscow. And he talked about how just being with them in the apartments, praising God, singing hymns, knowing that the KGB was outside ready to catch them and, and put them into prison, it meant everything just to be around other people who had courage. That's the sort of thing we desperately need here. And you, you know, you know I, I, I devote this book, I, I dedicated this book to a man named Father Tomislav Kolakovic. That's right. Yeah, he um, was a Croatian uh, Catholic priest doing anti-Nazi work in 1943 in Zagreb. He got a tip that the Gestapo was coming for him. So he got out of the country, went to his mother's homeland, Slovakia, adopted her last name, Kolakovic, and began teaching at the Catholic University there. And he started telling all his students, he said, listen, the good news is the Germans are going to lose this war. The bad news is the Soviets are going to be ruling this country when it's over. And the first thing they're going to do is come for the church. We got to mm -hmm. get ready. So he began putting together these groups of, um, of dedicated young Catholic students for prayer, for scripture study, but also to study the society around them and to 
talk deeply about what, what are we required to do? What does the church's teachings require us to do in this moment? And they would take decisions together and go out there and, and live them out. Kolakovic spread this network all around Slovakia in a sh in short time, like two or three years. Some of the Slovak bishops criticized him, telling him, oh, you're too alarmist, you're upsetting people. And, but he didn't listen because he knew Kolakovic, the Soviet mindset. He had studied in the Vatican in the Rusikum College to do missionary work in Russia. Sure enough, the Iron Curtain comes down. The first thing the communists do is come after the church. And the networks of faithful Catholics that Kolakovic prepared, they became the backbone of the underground church for the next 40 mm. years. Uh, I dedicate this book to him because I believe we are in a similar moment here in the United States. And faithful Christians, Catholic or not Catholic, uh, and anybody who can see the soft totalitarianism that we're moving into, we had better start now forming these small groups and these networks to protect each other. As we draw to a close here, I'd like to turn to the family. And I'd wonder if we could get your comment, just generally speaking, on the importance of the family in all of this. But also, you know, we have a lot of parents and future parents listening right now. Christians, Jews, non-believers uh, who would not wish their children to grow up in a culture of lies. So how do you raise children in a time like this? Uh, I'm curious what advice you have either from your own experience or from your conversations with people like the family men members of Vaclav Benda. Yeah. Well, uh, from my own experience, I would say, take the smartphones away. <laughs> Do not give your kids smartphones. I'm serious. It yeah. is incredible the damage that smartphones are, have done. And so many parents, I find, well-meaning parents, conservative, uh, you know, religious parents, just have this cognitive dissonance about the smartphone because they're so afraid that their kids are going to be left out if they don't have a smartphone. But I'm telling you, this is big. It's huge. Yeah. But uh, more substantively, uh, the chapter in Live Not By Lies about the family focuses almost entirely on the Benda family of Prague. Just amazing people. They raised six kids as Catholics under communism with the father in prison for four years. And I, I wanted to know, how did you do it? Because all their adult kids still practice the faith, even though the Czech Republic is the most atheist country in Europe. They all practice the faith and they're raising Václav and Camilla's grandchildren in the faith. Hmm. Well, there were several things. Um, briefly, they talked to the kids about what was going on in their society. They didn't try to shield them from everything around them, but rather they would have conversations with them to let them know the difference between truth and lies. And they were not a go along to get along kind of family. They thought it was really important to educate the kids and to not and to let them know that, you know, you're part of this struggle too. I mean, they, they brought the kids into the resistance movement. But what I found so interesting was it was not just telling the kids what was wrong with the world or where they had to stand against it, but they also poured into the moral imaginations of these children what was right about the world, what was good and true and beautiful. And that was primarily something Camilla did, the mom. She told me that she would read to these kids for at least two hours a day, even though she herself wow. was a professor and was trying to raise a family when her husband was in prison. And I, I said to her, Camilla, well, what did you read to them? She said, I would read fables. I would read myths. I read the classics, you know, because they needed to know what was, what we were fighting for, we, not just what we were fighting against, but what we were fighting for. And she said, 
I read them a lot of Tolkien. I said, oh, that's interesting. Tolkien, why Tolkien? She said, because we knew that Mordor was real. Mm. And we knew that the story of, of this party, the men, the hobbits, the elves and the dwarves, that was our story too. And I found that so interesting, you know, because uh, what she was trying to do is to build the moral imagination of the kids to see, so they could see themselves in these stories and to know that they were part of a bigger story, a story of, uh, of fighting evil and a story of redemption and a story of sacrifice. Finally, they prepared their kids for the fact that you, we're gonna have to suffer. We just are to, in order to live in truth. This was the most important lesson I got from, uh, from everybody. And the, the most important chapter in the book is the one on suffering. All of them say to Americans, if you're not prepared to suffer for your faith and for the truth, you're not going to make it. Mm. It's just a fact. Um, and they reminded me that most people in those societies, those communist societies, they conformed, you know, because they didn't want trouble either. But, so it took a lot of courage and uh, courage in groups um, to stand up, the courage and community to stand up for the truth. But there's no other, there's no choice. As Christians and as uh, we, you know, I, I speak as a Christian, uh, there's a difference between optimism and hope. Optimism says that everything's going to turn out great. Well, maybe, but we're not guaranteed that. Yeah. Uh, and if we believe, if we are, consider ourselves optimists, then we're probably not going to make it through the hard times. Mm. But hope, for a Christian at least, hope says that everything is going to work out for the good ultimately if we stay faithful to God and offer our sufferings uh, to him. And this is the story that I got over and over again from these Christians, some of whom went to prison and were tortured for their faith. They couldn't understand why they were there, but they didn't ask themselves that deep down. They just said, God has put me here for a reason. I'm going to hope that he will use my suffering and I will live so he can use my suffering for the redemption of the world and the purification of my soul. This is heavy stuff. But yeah. when you're sitting there like I was, for example, in a hotel lobby in Moscow, talking to this man, Alexander Ogorodnikov, whose face is partially paralyzed from the beatings he took in a Soviet prison, you know it's real. And that old man wept in front of me in the lobby of the Hotel Metropole, recalling a time that God sent an angel to him to give him a vision in prison to bolster him and to let him know through this miraculous event that the reason he was in prison was to speak to condemned men, men who were going to their deaths and who did not know God. And he was there to give them a word of hope and lead them to, uh, to accept Christ and to be redeemed before they went to their death. And that made it, that made it all worthwhile for Ogorodnikov because he knew that his suffering was not in vain. That's the sort of, those sort of people, people like Ogorodnikov, like the Russian Baptist Yuri Sipko, like all the Catholics I've talked to in Slovakia, uh, Dr. Sylvester Kuchmeri. These are men and women that we need to hear from today to prepare ourselves as Americans for the long and difficult road ahead. Well, I encourage every listener to go pick up a copy or two of Live Not By Lies to read the stories of these extraordinary men and women. Rod, thank you so much for this conversation. And above all, thank you for this book. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a Catholic. I'm not necessarily a timid person by nature, but this book, it, um, it was a gift of great courage. Uh, so thank you for that. 
Uh, thank you for, for having me on. These stories are so important. You know, I, you know, I, I was talking to these uh, people in, I think it was Slovakia, these Catholics, and they said that, you know, we always look to you Americans during the Cold War for, um, for hope, for help, and support, and thank you for that. And I looked at them and said, well, now that the Cold War is over, we Americans are looking to you and your testimonies and your example and your courage to inspire us. So uh, I'm happy to have been a conduit for these great people so that I hope they won't be ignored. Their stories won't go down the memory hole. And in fact, their stories will inspire us in this country to be heroes like they were in their day. Our guest today has been Rod Dreher. We've been discussing his wonderful new book, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Rod, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Rod Dreher on his excellent new book, Live Not by Lies. It's a very powerful and deeply unsettling book, and I think an important one to read today. So I put a link to that in the show notes, along with a couple of the essays and articles we mentioned throughout the episode. I thought we'd head out with something different this time and close with an excerpt from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's essay, Live Not by Lies. It's an excerpt that Rod shares in his book, and it's one of those passages worth reading time and again. And Solzhenitsyn writes, And so, we need not be the first to set out on this path. Ours is but to join. The more of us set out together, the thicker our ranks, the easier and shorter will this path be for us all. If we become thousands, they will not cope. They will be unable to touch us. If we will grow to tens of thousands, we will not recognize our country. But if we shrink away, then let us cease complaining that someone does not let us draw breath. We do it to ourselves. Let us then cower and hunker down while our comrades, the biologists, bring closer the day when our thoughts can be read and our genes altered. And if from this also we shrink away, then we are worthless, hopeless, and it is of us that Pushkin asks with scorn, why should cattle have the gifts of freedom? Their heritage from generation to generation is the belled yoke and the lash. <laughs>